This week, we're diving into two facets of one of the most complex female artists of all time. No pressure or anything, though. My name's Allison Brown, and I'm going to be your digital docent. There. I hope you've had a lovely week and that the holiday cheer is either making your heart a little lighter out there or at least isn't getting in the way of your day-to-day too much. So much hustle and bustle over here personally. We're just hoping to have a little bit of a pick-me-up before the end of the year and we'd hate for all of this balsam swag to go to waste. I mean, metaphorically speaking. Our overhead is imaginary so... Anyway, I'm digressing. I'll be honest, I've been a bit nervous to talk about the work that we have today, and this is just because the artist in question is so beloved. She's everywhere too, from t-shirts to enamel pens to tattoos. It almost feels like there's two of her indeed. I mean, the woman that she was and the woman that the public ended up manufacturing into their own personal totem of empowerment. Usually I like to be a little bit coy about which artists we're talking about before we introduce the work, but in this case, I think it's really important to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag already. Today, we're going to be discussing Frida Kahlo. The problem with Frida is that there seems to be a lot of her. There's Selma Hayek of Frida, there's Frida in a Candle, there's Let's Focus on Just Frida's Queerness Frida, and then there's the People's Frida that's crammed in alongside cute fashion icon Frida. And I mean, there's even some Fridas that are whiter than others, and a lot of them are more divorced from the socialist sympathies that she and her husband Diego often harbored. That's often what happens when we talk about larger-than-life artists that are, in many ways, cultural touchstones in their own right beyond that even of their work. Should this podcast ever touch on Andy Warhol, for instance, I'm sure I'll be having similar interpretation issues. With that said, if you cast away the Frida you might have seen on a tequila bottle or in the movie theater, you'll see the reason why she's become such an icon in the first place. To neglect to talk about Frida Kahlo in a series of discussions about marginalized female artists who also manage to be bosses in their own right would be a bit like talking about the Revolutionary War without discussing George Washington. Hell, to talk about Frida Kahlo if you end up discussing surrealism, or in many ways her opposition against surrealism's hugely misogynistic system is basically leaving a hole in the entire canon period. There's just so many places within the art world that Frida has touched, and it's not her fault that she's so iconic. There's worse role models for any artist to have in the world than her, honestly. So given the numerous Fridas out in the world right now, today's work of hers may be a little bit ironic, but I like to think of it as fitting. I think one of the reasons why she's so loved in the first place is precisely because she displayed so many of her facets out in the open in such a clear and visceral way, using visual metaphors that transcended the localized signifiers that she borrowed and built upon. So without further ado, here is The Two Fridas by Frida Kahlo. It's important to know that The Two Fridas is one of the first large-scale paintings that she ever made. It's 68 inches by 68, or 172.72 centimeters square metric-wise. 
a lot of Frida's works were painted in bed on days where her childhood injury in a freak car trolley accident ached so much that she was completely incapacitated, as such that she was able to find the energy and strength to make this life-sized work in 1939, which arguably, given her age of 32, she's at her prime, but also is within decades of pain that she's to the point where she needs to use a wheelchair. The fact she was able to make that is completely impressive. The content is betrayed in the title. The composition is comprised of two Frida Kahlo's, sitting side by side on a bench holding hands. Both Frida's postures are ramrod straight, and their bold gazes arrest the viewer at a three-quarter profile view. Three-quarter profile means that the Frida's are mostly turned so that one side of their face is more prominent in the view than the other. So, for example, the Frida to the left of the image is tilting herself inward such that her right cheek is closest to us, and vice versa. This makes the expressions of each Frida all the more striking, as it combines the clear vulnerability of their expression, their desire, that is, to face away towards each other instead of facing us, with this bold decision to stare the audience head on as they must. The Fridas do not look particularly pleased that we're there, either. Their lips are pursed together, and that strong gaze is half-lidded. It's a bit of an international sign of, oh, really, you showed up? Cool, not like we were talking or anything, asshole. Which, as we'll discuss, there's a good reason for that. Before we get there, though, let's talk about what the Fridas are wearing. Spoiler alert, it's pretty important. Our left-facing Frida is in all white. In particular, she's wearing an Edwardian-style blouse that's covered in intricate lace along the center of the bodice and over the cap sleeves and up its high neck. Per this particular style, the three-fourth sleeves are comprised of layers of gathered fabric. It's probably a very fine linen in particular. There's three main tiers that are delicately shirred in their layers, and it's followed by this billowing layer and even below that, a fitted undersleeve that caps her elbow. This blouse is tucked into a full white skirt, and it has a ring of delicate posies that are embroidered along the bottom of that hem and even into its ruffled flounce. The right Frida, however, is a horse of a literal different color. She's wearing a tunic in a deep cobalt blue with golden plaquettes sewn along the sides and along the sleeves in a rectangular panel, and there's also a golden collar to accentuate that. This tunic is called the huipil and has a very distinct shape, which Frida sculpts in the frame of the painting very carefully. It's clear that it's a free-flowing garment, and it's often made of one or multiple blocks of rectangular cloth that are sewn together strategically to form a tailored form. Indeed, Frida's is not tucked into her skirt, but rather pulls around her waist, showing the flexibility of the fabric as well as the lack of structure in comparison to left Frida's elaborate blouse. Right Frida's skirt is just as vibrant as her huipil, and a striking avocado green that flows over her lap and is hemmed by a foot-long ruffle of lace, otherwise known as the holan. If possible, however, the most striking part of this composition is not what the Fridas are wearing, but rather what is held within them. The center of the narrative in this painting are the Frida's hearts, both of which are in various stages of being broken or full. Left Frida's extravagant blouse is rendered in tatters over her left breast, as her heart is clearly split in half. Its ventricles open to the world as its veins and arteries wrap out of her and into her hands and that of the other Frida as if they are but fines. In her right hand, she holds a surgical clamp, which attempts to clamp one of those very veins shut in, well, 
vein. And no, the pun really wasn't intended. There is a puddle of blood settling into that crisp white skirt of hers, and it's slowly seeping into the cloth. It's clearly not doing anything. Right, Frida, however, is doing much better compared to her companion. It's perhaps why she's the one cradling left Frida's hand instead of vice versa. Her heart is fully intact. There's no ventricles to be seen, and the vein that winds down her left arm only pours into one thing. A portrait of Frida's then-estranged husband, Diego Rivera. As the blood from left Frida pours into right Frida's heart via their connecting vein, she stares directly on as a blanket of churning clouds gather overhead, that gloomy mood clearly set. I've been using the term left and right Frida for the past few moments, but I do think it's important for me to be transparent with you now. Most art historians refer to left Frida as European Frida and right Frida as Mexican Frida. Indeed, Frida didn't make any move to shy away from her mixed background. Her father was a German immigrant, while her mother was a mestiza, which is a person of mixed indigenous and Spanish heritage. The Frida she carefully depicted, and therefore the one that commercial Frida is often shown as, often decided to highlight her mother's contribution to her background, especially as Frida loved to mix and match indigenous costuming into her famous wardrobe. In particular, Tijuana costume was favored by Frida, which highlights the mindset brought to those at the forefront of creating a shared Mexican culture post-revolution. Tijuana culture and costume became a symbol for the newborn culture, and given Frida's commitment at the heart of the revolution, her desire to incorporate their costume to help makes a shared Mexican identity track. It also tracks that the Mexican Frida is considered whole in this case. By 1939, there's a lot that's fraught about European Frida, not just because of the hard-fought independence of her fellow Mexicans. Frida's father is German, after all, and good old Hitler's on the rise by this point. It's said that throughout the Second World War, Frida decided to spell her name with an E to reflect the German word for peace, Frieden. Admittedly, I'm not entirely sure as the veracity of this, but it's a pretty sweet story. So I figured, why not throw it in? Now, with that said, this isn't a painting that just centers on her identity. 1939 is also the year that Frida divorced her husband, Diego, and it was pretty messy. This was just a pit stop before their marriage in 1940, but at the time, Frida was processing what it was like to live in a world post-Diego. It's said that Frida's European costume is modeled after her own wedding gown, and that it's rendered asunder, ripped at the breast, and bled upon as her lifeblood is funneled towards the very symbol of her great love is... Well, that's a capital S statement, my friends. Although I'm really loath to speak about an artist in context of their partner, not mentioning Diego at this point makes the two Fridas a little difficult to understand. Diego Rivera is known for a lot of things, but one of the most singular ones that are key to understanding to both of them in general is Diego's prominence as a Mexican intellectual at this point of the Mexican Revolution, as well as his tumultuous status in the Communist Party and his general commitment towards workers' rights and a visual language for Mexico. I'm not saying this because I think that Frida was influenced by Diego in this sense. If anything, Frida's affinity with the revolutionary cause started as a child when her mother would feed fleeing revolutionaries in their courtyard. But so much as I really think that it explains how Frida would connect Diego's vitality and instrumental influence in her life with those visual cues of what she considered essential visual cues of her Mexican identity. At the risk of sounding heavily romantic about it, both Diego and Mexico were Frida's spiritual homes, so I can see how she would want to combine both of these visual metaphors together in such a way. 
I think it would be remiss to not also mention how blood, veins, and what some might consider body horror in Frida's work. The two Fridas are hardly the only works in which veins are featured. It's a pretty common motif, and it's one which I remember most strikingly when I first saw Frida's painting Henry Ford Hospital. Henry Ford Hospital is a pretty emotionally difficult image to encounter, so I'll go ahead and give you the cliff notes. Specifically, it depicts Frida's miscarriage in Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, and it's absolutely heartrending. Frida tends to use a lot of repeating imagery, both in terms of costume, as well as body horror and agony. Given that Frida's life was ruled by chronic pain, persistent surgeries, and a lack of mobility, especially towards the end of her life, there's definitely a certain amount of power in using those elements of pain to create beauty instead. Now, it's always difficult to categorize Frida, which is something that I think is pretty delightful from my personal point of view, given how much it's frustrated other art historians over the years. In particular, André Breton wanted to claim Frida Kahlo in the name of surrealism for years. And considering that the way that surrealism works is that André just gets to walk in and literally swing his dick in the name of an art movement by stating who's a surrealist and who isn't, no wonder Frida said fuck off. More to the point, Frida's work is simply about expressing her internal into the external by way of visual metaphor. Now, some folks will shuffle her into the category of naive painting, which is one of the most frustrating quote-unquote categories in all of art history, as if being self-taught means that you're somehow innocent about the world at large. Now, others, including myself, connect her to magical realism, and I do think that this is probably the most accurate given that magical realism melds together the fantastic with grounding elements of realism. More to the point, magical realism has its roots in the Latin American community, which is a far more comforting column for me to describe the work given Frida's background. Now, there are so many intelligent and broad interpretations of Frida's work, and given her popularity, I would really love to hear yours. Go ahead and tweet us your thoughts at yourdigitaldocent, email me at your.digital.docent at gmail.com, or add us in your Instagram stories by using at yourdigitaldocent. As I said, we'll be working on incorporating some Facebook action very soon, and from there we can have discussions about this kind of thing forum style. Rad, right? Now, great news on the distribution front. It sounds like we are on all platforms now, and that includes our outliers in Apple Podcasts and Overcast. Now that we're pretty widespread, it's time for me to ask you a big favor. Namely, if you could go over to your podcast outlet of choice and give us a review, that would be tight as hell. Reviews, especially ones with the more stars the better, are how other people who are not my dear, sweet friends find this podcast. I'd love to share this with everyone, so if you could help boost that algorithm so that we can start rising the charts, that would be amazing. With that please sent, I'd also like to specifically thank TJ Quads for the usage of their song, It Just Makes Me Happy. Check them out on SoundCloud by searching for aka DJ Quads. My eternal gratitude also goes to my research sources this week, which are from the Victorian Albert Museum in London, the Frida Kahlo Foundation, Galleria Valmar in Barcelona, Artsy, and Google Arts and Culture. Check all of them out in the show notes. There's some amazing art criticism and interpretation this week from Galleria Valmar in particular, and I really think it'll make your week to check them out. And finally, thanks for coming around again. See you in the lobby next week. Cheers. <laughs>